Hi, everybody. Andrew Holacek here, and I am really delighted to be able to spend a few minutes with a wonderful writer, Jennifer Duper, who um, recently published a book called Liminal Dreaming, Exploring Consciousness at the Edges of Sleep. And uh, as usual, I will introduce Jennifer formally, and then we have just a host, I think, really compelling topics that we're going to um, riff on for the next few minutes. So anyway, uh, Jennifer Duper is a San Francisco-based writer, lecturer, and consciousness hacker. She's the author of the recently released Liminal Dreaming, Exploring Consciousness at the Edges of Sleep, and the founder of the Oneironauticum, an international organization that explores the phenomenological experience of dreams as a means of experimenting with mind. She also teaches the practice of liminal dreaming, surfing the edges of consciousness using hypnagogic and hypnopompic dream states. Jennifer has lectured and led workshops at festivals, conferences, and venues worldwide. Um, she's an active member of the consciousness hacking movement, has studied with people like Richard Miller, presented in a number of different venues around the world, and obviously has spent a great deal of her life exploring these sorts of things. So Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Um, I can't wait to get into some of these topics. I really enjoyed your book. Thank you very much. So where I always start is, um, how did you get into this? Before we take the deeper dive into what liminal dreaming is and all that, how did uh, dreams altogether and then more specifically the issue or the topic of liminal dreaming um, become so important to you? Well, I've been an avid dreamer my whole life. And a lot of my earliest childhood memories are of dreams. And I did my um, graduate work, my master's and my doctoral work, um, uh, never quite finished the dissertation, but um, it's studying myth and religion. And I was really interested in sort of the dream aspect of that at the same time that I was a practitioner. And I started teaching dream work um, using onerogens, so mm -hmm. anything that creates vivid dreams. Um, uh, using some uh, psychogeographical practices. And then um, I've been teaching dream work for quite a long time. And I had, um, I had kind of a watershed dream one night where um, my, I realized that my body had fallen asleep before my mind had, which is a, which is a thing I now know I can, I can in fact bring about. And I, I, I was having this, dream that was a very different kind of dream a kind of a half there dream where i was fully fully aware of where i was and um awake at the same time that i was asleep um and uh, i thought you know this is so interesting I, I i'm really familiar with these kinds of dreams these going to sleep dreams and I mean, how come no one ever talks about that and how come i've never thought about these before so i started um exploring them both uh studying about them and reading about them and also going into the space and opening it up and la voila came to liminal dreaming. Wow, fantastic. And so tell us a little bit about um, what liminal dreaming actually is because people in, in this audience, they're familiar with um, the nocturnal meditations, Jennifer, at least as I articulate them. And, and in case you are, are familiar with that, I, I use this little map of uh, lucid dreaming um, 
evolving into dream yoga, which can evolve into sleep yoga, <clears throat> which can evolve into bardo yoga. But liminal dreaming is uh, a new entry, so to speak. And so define for us what that term means. And then we'll definitely jump into it because I have a lot of questions for you around this one. Sure. And you do write a little bit. You're actually one of the few other uh, people who, who does write about hypnagogia, um, I, which I very much appreciated from your book. Um, liminal dreaming is the, is the umbrella term that I use for the dream states between awake and asleep. So liminal comes from the Latin limen, which is where we get words like limit. It means like a threshold or a doorway, a, a, a place that's, that's both and neither. You know, a doorway is both part of the two rooms and neither the two rooms. Um, so the liminal dreams are the ones that are between awake and asleep. Um, so it's hypnagogia when you're falling asleep, that kind of hallucinatory... Uh, uh, freewheeling kaleidoscopic uh, uh, phase that we all go through when we're falling asleep. And hypnopompia, the same thing in reverse. So when you're waking up, that, that drifty, half thought, half dream space where you can like, like skipping stone between awake and, and asleep in the morning, that's hypnopompia. And these two dream states um, are uh, both and neither awake and asleep. So in liminal dream states, you are fully aware of where you are. I'm lying on the bed. I'm in my bedroom. You, your waking senses are intact. I can hear somebody. I can hear the garbage man on the street. I can hear the conversation somebody is having near me and understand what they're saying, but also asleep. I mean, I'm, I'm partway asleep. I'm having a dream. I'm in, I'm unconscious partly and, and having dream space. So, um, so liminal dreams are that both neither awake, asleep, dream state. And we all, everyone goes through them. We're all familiar with them. Yeah, and I, I think that's what's so cool about what you're doing is because it's a way to um, articulate a map that can therefore bring a more sophisticated understanding of the territory. So by, by exploring liminal dreams, um, we can better understand this kind of trajectory between waking and dreaming and back and forth. And I, I think what's really compelling in addition, um, Jennifer, is that liminal dreaming can be subsumed under a larger rubric of, of liminality altogether, which is where I get super interested um, because this is obviously deeply connected to Bartle principles, which I'll get back to in a second. But the reason I, I riff on this a little bit is that after I read your book, I started thinking a little bit more about um, not just liminal states of uh, consciousness of mind, but liminal spaces and how we experience, um, perhaps without ever thinking about them, uh, liminal spaces all the time, like um, transition arenas, like stairwells and elevators and doorways and hotel hallways late at night and schools during breaks. Uh, what else do we have? Like empty parking lots abandoned buildings, ghost towns, airport lobbies, and, and things like that. And it's it's a really provocative space for me because it's potentially uh, an unsettling space and also, even more potentially, a space that's pregnant with potentiality and ripening. And, and even in tantric theory, in, in Buddhist and in Hindu tantric theory, they often talk about, they don't use the term liminality, but they often talk about these spaces in between 
to be um, particularly ripe for transformation because using Eastern terms, that's when um, karma is temporarily suspended. You know, you're not, you're neither here nor there. And if one can negotiate these these liminal bardo type spaces, then we have a real opportunity for transformation. And, and, and just, again, the other thing that comes to mind are like even liminal identity, transgender um, individuals, or you could say liminal beings or artists, those who, those who are difficult to pigeonhole. And so for me, when I read your book, it was like, wow, this is a really interesting kind of archetype of, of paying a little bit more attention to not just liminal states of mind, but liminal spaces altogether. Um, and that we're kind of hanging through these things because usually we want to go from one space to the next and we don't really spend that much time hanging out um enjoying the destination so to speak so does that has this also expanded your uh, way of relating to these physical gaps in in one's life and liminality altogether is this a, a byproduct of your own study of liminal dreaming absolutely and i love your your riff just then that's really good i mean liminal spaces are themselves transformation you know i mean uh you know when you, like when you're walking off the street into your job or you know, um, when you're, you're, you know, you're going from uh, hanging out with your friends to, you know, to go hang out with your family, whatever it is, like all the different selves that we are all of the time. And, um, you know, and as a culture, we really, we really think about the, um, the black, white, the on, off, you know, we, you know, we love the, you know, we love to think of things as solid state, um, right. but, but studying Liminal dreaming, I became really aware of the continuity of consciousness, all of the stops along the way between awake and asleep. And that really did get me into what in the book I, I call liminal mind of, mm-hmm. um, of becoming aware of these, of these transformational spaces, these spaces in between and realizing how much, um, how much of just my day to day is really involved with the liminal. I mean, things as um, a, a thing as um, as basic, where you know, even the most hardcore materialist will agree. So, if there's if there's a sound, you know, if if across the street, um, you know, a dog barks, and then the sound travels through the ear, through the through the air, and goes into my ear, and my mind says, "Barking dog." Does the sound of the barking dog, is it with the dog? Is it in my mind? Is it in the air between me and the dog? You know, like where, where is the sound? And I mean, even something is, you know, as basic as that, you know, is in fact, the reality is, is a kind of a liminality. Yeah, it's really terrific. And I love the image you use in your book, um, very evocative that, you know, very paraphrasing you where we're always looking for dry land you know consciousness um for instance is is use the analogy of consciousness being dry land the unconscious being water and to me it's like we're like you mentioned earlier we're pinging we're, we're dancing across trying to find um dry land um and being somewhat intimidated and even um unsettled with the fluidity the the, the liminality the, the barter-like nature between the gaps and just to show you how far this goes for me um this idea of passing to versus passing through, it, you know, one of my main teachers was Trungpa uh, Miche, and he wrote a really dazzling book on Tantra called Journey Without Goal. And I think what liminality reveals for me on these deepest levels is that we are highly um, 
goal-oriented beings for whatever they, uh, whatever that goal may be for us, and that really it's the journey through the spaces um, that I find the most interesting. That kind of relaxes the normal agendas I have for, for acquisition, for stasis, for security. Um, and, and so I think in the deepest sense, liminality points to this kind of tantric ideal that the, the path is, um, the journey actually is the path. And if we can relax uh, our aspirations, ambitions to acquire, achieve, um, you know, find dry land, whatever metaphor you want to use, we can therefore take a greater sense of delight and in, in the, the preciousness of the, of the present moment, however groundless and unsettling it may be from an egoic perspective. So um, does this resonate with you as well in terms of your own practice and experience with these sorts of things? Oh, yeah, very much. And, and in the, um, as I uh, uh, explain in the book, um, subjectively, hypnagogia and hypnopomnia are some of the strangest states we have, you know, this kind of non-narrative, free associative kaleidoscopic swirl, but also objectively, they're very strange. You know, if we talk about um, brainwave states, most brainwave states are marked by, you know, a single sine wave shape. You know, we all, you, you can visualize an EEG reading, right? right. And, um, you know, so theta has two, but hypnagogia and apomnia have six sine wave states. So even though it's by far the shortest brainwave state. So one of the images I, I really like is, again, if you think about the consciousness as the dry land and the unconscious as the water, which are pretty common images, where the water hits the land is where all the waves are, you know, yeah. like Dodger, and that's where you surf. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I really like the image of surfing consciousness, of kind of like riding these waves and, and sort of seeing where it takes you. But it, it is much more you know, chaotic it is, and in that way, um, does is unsettling, and is a place where, you know, whatever you've got there in your unconscious is gonna, is gonna bubble up, um, you know. So, so rather than the, the the solidity of of walking, just to really push this metaphor, you know, mm -hmm. you, you've got the really having to really riding, really getting into those sort of Deleuzian flows. Uh, through consciousness, and and it's a very different way of experiencing one's own mind. You know, it's, it? it's sort of like surfing these consciousness flows. Yeah, very much so. That's beautiful. I've never heard that term diluvian flow in relation to consciousness. <laughs> I love it. You, I was, I, you're hanging out some really wonderful um, terms. I, you know, the kind of the non-narrative component of liminality is that that's a very compelling thing to say, um, Jennifer. Because very often when I think about egoic structure altogether. I mean, basically, ego is just a narrative. I mean, it's just a a really bad story with a really <laughs> sad, with a really sad ending, right? And so, <laughs> so, so I think this is what one reason. This is so much more. You know, it's very interesting what the way you riff on your work is very similar to what I do with my charter with a, what I call these nocturnal practices. Is is essentially using sleep and dream is an excuse fundamentally to explore the nature of mind and reality. And, and I think you, you do very similar sorts of things. You're using this particular iteration of a uh, phenomenal experience and pointing out how it has all these other applications. And so just this idea of non-narrative is really compelling. It's like, you know, I, I, I often have this experience when I'm traveling internationally. I think it's really quite a potent experience of, of liminal spaces where, you know, you wake up in the, in the dead of night, jet lagged, you have no idea where you are. You know, you wake up, okay, wh where am I? And then there's this kind of, you know, the, the narrative of 
itself has been completely um, kind of torn. The page of your book has been ripped out. And so you wake up, the narrative isn't there. And in that gap, if we can hang out in that liminal space, man, is it interesting. But usually what happens is this painful, revelatory kind of Rolodex <laughs> of, of experience just kicks back in and says, okay, KK, where am I? There's a little panic, a little panic, a little panic. All of a sudden, boom. Okay, I'm in Tokyo. Yes, with this convention. Yes. And ping, 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 ping. The narrative comes back online. You kick out of the liminal state. Your heart slows down because you, you realize, oh, okay, my storyline's back intact. Uh, ego's back in line. And so liminality, to me, reveals egoic structure. It, it reveals how, um, in, in a very real way, liminal spaces, just like Bardo spaces, are like they're anti-ego. And so when we experience them, um, there's part of it that doesn't that doesn't want to experience it. The, the kind of groundless nature that these liminal spaces reveal is very unsettling for for the ego. And so when you when you speak about non-narrative spaces, I think that's just spot on in terms of the you know kind of farming into this natural state of consciousness we have every single night. They can really teach us a lot about who and what we are. That's exactly what I'm on about. You know, I mean, it's it's. I mean, people. Um, as you well know from your work, um, people want reasons. Why should I be trying liminal dreaming? And there's, it's great for creativity. It's great for problem solving. It's great for healing. There are a lot of um, uh, applications for liminal dreaming, and I explain all of those. And I, and I think they're they're really great. But what I'm really mostly doing is, in fact, you know, consciousness exploration. It's a it's yeah. a really intense meditation when all of there is is the unfolding moment of now there's not really a storyline you can put around the whole thing and and um in the in the liminal dream space so you're um the the what happens is like the the monologue right the interior monologue that organizes your thoughts in your day and creates the story around all, everything that's happening, you know, so I'm taking in all these senses, I've got places that I'm going, reasons that I'm going there, people who I'll see, my relationships with these people, I've got this interior monologue that's always going, that's right. that organizes all of my consciousness into the story, but in the hypnagogic and hypnopompic spaces, that, that interior monologue actually quiets down, yep. and I have waking consciousness Right, I have the ability to observe what's happening, but I also have this kind of more pure experience of unfolding consciousness that isn't so much organized by that that constantly yapping monkey mind. And it's a remarkable experience just to see what arises in my mind, what you know, what stories, what you know, what images my consciousness puts together. Again, there's, I mean. At the, I, in my experience, at the, um, at the deepest levels of liminal dream, when I'm closest to a sleep, basically, the, the, it does tend to coalesce into more of a narrative arc. Yeah. But at the, at the lightest levels, when I'm closer to awake, because you can be 80% awake and 20% dreaming or the other way around or half and half, as I have discovered, there are many stops along the continuity of consciousness between awake and asleep. But at the closest, stage to awake but still unconscious it's it's this incredibly fast moving you know free associative swirl between you know with an image or thought 
a perception unfolds into this one, unfolds into this one. And, and yet, I mean, you know, thousands of them happening simultaneously, you know, kind of like, I don't know if you've ever read the Avatam Sutra, the Avatam Saka Sutra. Avatam Sutra, yeah. Thank you very much, Avatam Sutra. Sutra, which is these, these amazing unfolding moments of jewels within flowers, you know, uh, you know, reflecting everything that exists you know, in, in a, um, you know, the kind of, you know, net of Indra holographic, you know, moment of each. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly, you know, complicated and psychedelic and ornate and, you know, vastly unfolding. And it's, it's kind of like that. <laughs> no, totally. And, and what comes to mind here again, and, and, and it's interesting because we're, and, I, and I, I'm saying this so that um, our listeners have a little bit of patience with us, because I think what, after we go through this, you know, We've immediately ventured into the deep end of the pool. I want to yeah. come back to the, I want to come back to the shallow end. So you know, more particularly, talk about the stages, how to do it, why to do it. But since we're going here, let's go with it a little bit further. To me, it's like what these states do. And again, I'm just saying what you're saying in my own language is that they they reveal that the kind of pixelated nature of of mind where. We, we have this kind of, uh, you know, another metaphor would be, of course, pointillism. You know, they're fundamentally all that exists, and even quantum theory and the like um, speaks of this, Buddhist Abhidharma, kind of the um, atomistic um, psychology of foundational Buddhist teachings talk about how fundamentally, um, just like physical reality can be parsed down to um, atoms and subatomic particles, Psychological experience can similarly be dissected to what they refer to as dharmas with a small d, which is basically like moments of experience or like the the, uh, the atomic nature of perception, um, which, by the way, science is also working with this, trying to me measure things like mind moments. But to me, what's so interesting, exactly like you're talking about, it's it's a way to watch the monologue come undone, a way to watch... Um, egoic structure dissolve because that's fundamentally what's happening here is the ego is temporarily going offline in this kind of Bardo state. Um, it'll kick back in line, of course, in dreams to greater or lesser degrees. But during that magical liminal Bardo space, you can get an intimation of how reality is in fact pixelated. That if you take a very close look, um, and this is what the spaces reveal to me, is just this the lightning rapidity of how mind just pings from one image, pre-thought, full-thought, dreamlet, um, in this kaleidoscopic way that you talk about beautifully in the book that is super fascinating. And, it, and if you have some idea of what this train is like with the map that, that you provide, I mean, all of a sudden you have a very accessible way to work with a heightened sense of awareness every single night when you go to sleep. And, and I want to get back to that later about how Obviously, this can be used for lucid dreaming and all that sort of thing. But um, this is what makes me excited about what, what you're doing, is, is just bringing a more sophisticated map to a territory we all experience, but usually just kind of gloss over as we reach for something a little bit more um, solid, stable, and real, even though in this case, it's, it's the dream state. So um, I just love what you're doing. So let, let's talk, if it's okay, let, let's backpedal just a little bit. And maybe talk a little bit further, because we've been circumambulating this, like for people who are interested in liminal dreaming, um, like why bother? Why, why, should I, why should I do this? What are some of the other benefits um, outside of this kind of deeper dive? What else can I learn from liminal dreaming? Right. I mean, and, and, um, and I'm sure your 
your listeners just got a little taste of the kind of um, consciousness, philosophic uh, excitement that people like us get when we're when we're exploring consciousness through these through these means. I mean, I you know, as you know, somebody who um, who studied and practiced. Buddhism and and had you know a, a very uh, a, a more more Zen meditation practice. I would I would say and has had a lot of practices. Uh, my primary practice right now is is this is liminal dreaming. Um, just watching my own mind unfold, consciousness exploration. But there's a lot of other things to do with it. So um, uh, all of these stories about things that have happened in hypnagogia, the um, you know, Kekule conceived the benzene ring in a hypnagogic state, and the periodic table was conceived in a hypnagogic state. Louis Agassi figured out how to chip away stone to find fossil, etc. You know, it's it's um it's the state in which you know artists and thinkers have that aha moment. And I myself have have figured out a lot of things in hypnagogia and hypnopomia. So, in other words, creativity and problem solving. Um, Thomas Edison and Salvador yeah. Dali, independently yeah. of each other, came up with the same practice for using hypnagogia to, to, to tell, generate tell ideas. About, tell us about that because that's a cool one. That's yeah. something that people can actually play with. So tell us, tell us about what Dali and Edison were doing to actually kind of troll this state for for creative insights. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, it is a really good one, and is one that anybody can use. And I get a lot of great reactions from people. Um, to him, I teach this practice. So uh, Edison um, came up with a lot of his ideas for inventions in hypnagogia, and he invented like everything. And right. um, and Dali uh, uh, came up with a lot of his very dreamlike art, um, also in hypnagogia. And what they would do is um, each man, uh, when very sleepy, um, you know, and circadian rhythms late afternoon when you have an energy dip is a great time to try this. They would um, uh, ha- sit back in a very, very, very comfortable, you know, big cushy armchair with metal plates on the ground on either side of the chair, in Edison's case, one side on Dolly. And Edison held a ball in each hand. Dolly kept a big brass Spanish key. He's very specific about that. And they would sit back in the armchair and um, and go into hypnagogia holding the items above the metal plates. And Dolly kept a sketch pad next to him and Edison kept a pad of paper and a pencil to write down ideas, and they would go into hypnagogia, and then as soon as they started to slip from hypnagogia into sleep, their the grip on what they were holding would loosen, the thing being held would clatter onto the metal plate, and um, they would jolt up, and Edison would just start writing down ideas, and Dali would sketch. And so, um, you know, basically they were just mining hypnagogia for ideas, you know, um, problem solving ideas, that kind of thing. Really easy to do this at home. You can hold, you know, you can hold a, a handful of change or a jingly toy, or you can use the Charles Turk trick and just lie down with your arm in the air. As soon as you start to fall asleep, the arm will drop. You can keep pad and paper, sketchbook. Um, I actually uh, use a voice activated recorder. Um, there's phone apps you can buy for, you know, a few dollars that are um, voice activated. So they'll only record when you start talking um, a lot of different ways to capture whatever is running through your head at the moment. Of Nagajia, but it's, I mean, sort of the principle behind it is, um, is both that it's 
that there's a, it's a very visionary space. You know, the space of the hypnagogia um, is this this open, you know, visionary creative space. You know, a place where you can go for the flowering of ideas. It's also uh, a different way of thinking. Again, because your normal daytime interior monologue shuts down, and so um, things that you already, where you already know the answer on some level, something like the benzene ring or the periodic table of elements. In both cases, problems that um, that somebody had been, you know, churning in their mind for a really long time. And then in hypnagogia, your awakened consciousness kind of gets out of the way, and the, the the thing that your intuition knows bubbles to the surface. But you have enough waking consciousness to perceive it, to perceive it, and get the answer. So for creativity and for problem solving, you know, and for you know figuring out thing, you know, problems that you've been working on for a long time, the Dolly Edison exercise is a great way to get at those things. Yeah, that's fantastic, and I, I often think of of Dolly's art. Is a kind of you know my term you know bardo bardo art or now armed with this new term of it's a liminal art it's it's very dreamlike mm. it's not here it's not there and that I mean he's it's a perfect kind of artistic portrayal of the content of of this experience which is why when you look at his stuff it's just so mind twisting and the fact that he actually farmed it from that state makes it even more compelling I mean he really was. Um, painting his mind, wasn't he? It's just like, whoa, here we go. It's fantastic. Very much so. Yeah, I mean, I, that I, was um, so was Carl Jung, by the way. Um, huh. You know, active active imagination right. practices are also about you know, um, you know, he thought meant he thought basically that the encounter with the unconscious that we get in hypnagogia and then translating it into using creativity to translate it into waking experience was really was enough to bring about mental healing. So yeah. he would go into these spaces and that's where the, that's where the red book comes from, the images from the red book. Yeah. And I had the, I had the pleasure of seeing um, an, an exhibit of Jung's art at the Santa Barbara um, university art museum last May. And uh, I walked in and I, I looked around and I said, Whoa, yeah. Jung was a hypnagogia tripper. For sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, and also lucid dreamer. But you know, he he was very, <clears throat> excuse me, reticent to endorse lucid dreaming because he realized the the shadow elements quite quickly they could be used for you know yep. inflation, self-aggrandizement, and the like. And so he, I, I completely agree with you. He was an exquisitely sensitive dreamer. Um, obviously, liminal is an aspect I hadn't really understood as much as the others but so talk to us a little bit more jennifer if you would about how else we can have these dreams I, it, to me this is kind of a double there's two parts to this question because one is you know how can we cultivate them a little bit more overtly with things like the dolly edison um, approach um, and secondly i think the other one that's just as compelling is um, how do we better increase our, our recognition of this natural transition because obviously it's something we're having um, we're experiencing right. everything. It's just a matter of how aware we are of it. So I think we can approach access in, in these two ways. One is a little bit more deliberate with the Dolly Edison approach, and one is a little bit more one of recognition. It's like how do we open the aperture of our awareness so that we can better recognize this and a transition that's occurring every every night and every morning. So, um, and it is in fact um, something that happens to everyone every day. Um, if you uh, look at it. Objectively, there are 
as measured by EEG, there are a limited number of brainwave states that we go through every day. You know, right now we're, we're probably in, in like beta, something like, you know, 14 to 30 waves per second because we're in an engaged conversation. We go, th- we all go through very deep sleep, like, you know, 0.3 to 0.5 to, you know, three or four waves per second. You know, um, there's, um, uh, you know, uh, gamma is associated with lucid dreaming, you know, 40 or higher. Right. We all go through certain brainwave states every day. And one of those, you know, hypnagogia and hypnopomia, though so little is known about hypnopomia. Um, so we all go through it every day. Um, uh, it's just like REM. You know, everyone says you go through it whether you remember it or not. Right. And and pretty much everyone is aware of this experience. When I start describing it to people, you know, you're falling asleep and you have that, or or often when you're if you're fighting to stay awake somewhere, you're at some cultural event or whatever it is, and you are having that kind of half dream hallucination. Met people who are um, who've done meditation retreats, you know, often you'll go through some phase of time when you're fighting to stay awake, you know, and you have that hallucinatory hypnagogia. So we all have it when your arm jerks or your leg jerks. It's a hypnic jerk or a myoclonic yep. jerk, you know, yep. you're there. Um, and for for most people, all I have to do is explain that this is actually a brainwave state that exists. So of people who are listening right now, if they don't recognize the experience already, um, probably are going to have this experience. Like people are always coming up to me if I see them, you know, like the day or the week after I gave a talk or they came to a workshop and they're like, I totally had hypnagogic dreams. And like, yeah, or hypnopompic dreams. I mean, yes, you know, so for most people, just hearing about it is enough to experience it, just to recognize the experience. Um, there's also a lot of uh, exercises and practices you can do to find it, to learn to locate. Um, I, uh, if you, uh, just for the plug, but if you go to my website, liminaldreaming.com, um, or in the book, there are a bunch of um, beginning exercises, and there's an audio of me leading you through a beginning exercise. Also, Yoga Nidra, which is a form of guided, guided meditation, is a great way of a, sort of a, a, you know being led into it. So. That's to learn to locate the experience, and then once you've once you've learned to locate it, learning to linger there, um, basically learning to be a conscious dreamer. um, There are so many ways to go about that, you know. So, uh, making a practice of daytime naps, Um, you know, napping with a voice-activated recorder, so that you can start to mumble out your dream as soon as you wake up or, um, or finding, um, you know, finding a partner, somebody else who wants to explore this space, um, keeping a journal, basically, you know, as with all things, attention is the magic. If you pay a little bit of attention to it. Um, so things that are going to keep you in this space, an art project, you know, sort of a Jungian style art project or, um, you know, trying a bunch of the practices, just different practices, like in the book, like napping in public is a great one or napping in the, napping in the car, obviously not when you're driving is a great one. Um, so trying a bunch of the different exercises, um, as a way of, of, uh, training your attention, um, uh, trying to have your body fall asleep before your mind, mm-hmm. um, 
another one is trying to teach yourself to talk through hypnagogia, which I can now do. Um, I can actually also touch type when I'm in the lightest stages of hypnagogia, um, sort of a, a form of automatic writing. So trying to teach yourself to do different things um, is a way of, of learning to linger in the space. At this point, I can drop into hypnagogia pretty much at will, and I can stay there for hours, and I do. <laughs> so there's a lot of ways to learn to a lot of ways to learn to linger once you've located the space. Yeah, gosh, you pinged down a number of really cool things here. One is, you know, with the, the question I asked earlier, like why bother with this with this topic. One is that you hit on, well, if you've ever meditated, especially in a group setting on a warm afternoon with a full belly for more than half an hour, you're going to start, you know, dipping in and out of these spaces, and instead of fighting them or resisting them or tying yourself up in the knots in your meditation as you're a loser, you know, you can't do this. No, no, no. You can say, hey, wait a second. This is this is liminal states. This is a liminal um, kind of dream, and I can now bring my mindfulness and awareness to this. And so instead of, to me, it's, it's transformed my relationship to what was previously an unwanted experience in my meditation, where it's like, oh, God, I'm starting to dissolve. I can't do this meditation thing. No, it's like I'm just going to expand the horizons of my meditation to, in fact, include this state so that liminality now becomes part of my meditation. And then a deeper, more refined, nuanced understanding of this becomes available to me. And so along those lines, um, Jennifer, talk to us a little bit about your understanding and experience of the role of meditation in all this. Because um, in one part of your book, you actually say the liminal dreaming is a form of mindfulness meditation. So talk to us a little bit about what that means and how you engage meditation um, uh, as, in fact, a preparatory practice for liminality. So I, I have often understood meditation, um, a few things, um, but, but one key thing that meditation is for me is observing mind. Right, you're yep. you're um, yep. you know you're trying to observe your own mind and your own um, you know experience what's happening, how is it working, you know, and so becoming learning to locate and linger in liminal dream is an amazing practice of watching mind, watching your mind unfold, and because it knocks out a little bit that interior monologue. Um, as long as you can remain uh, conscious enough to not go into sleep, you're, I mean, seeing what bubbles up and how it self-organizes and, and what's in there is, is, a, is astounding. And as I, as I said earlier, I mean, in the absence of narrative, a lot of all, all that's left is the, the unfolding moment of now. I you see. know, when I'm watching my consciousness, you know, all the images and, you know, how it, what, what free associates and what comes up and, you know, wow, isn't, it's amazing to me that, you know, a, a Mayan warrior brought up, you know, the, these, you know, this, the image, the, the, the associative images of, you know, then like a pyramid and then I'm in Egypt and, you know, then there are flowing robes and, you know, and, and, you know, kind of watching, you know, how my mind, uh, attaches things or, or what arises, you know, and, and, you know, of course it's very specifically one's own mind when you're in these spaces. So, um, so, I mean, as a meditation, it's very powerful. I mean, and as meditators really understand, um, you know, again, I like to talk about this continuity of 
consciousness. And there's lots of different places the mind goes, you know, I mean, there's the, this, the, the continuity of, you know, those, those moments of really deep mental silence and the, 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 the chatter, but then everything in between, you know, sometimes in this, the sound of the tree, the wind and the tree, you know, like come, like actually comes into my consciousness. And I feel that moment of stilling where the, the, you know, the wind, my mind actually is carried away by that wind or is quieted by that wind. And, um, again, if, you know, as, as meditators, people, I think often will recognize that hypnagogia. I mean, the, the spaces that people can go into where you're deep in meditation and then there's the hypnagogia and your mind can kind of go back and forth a little bit between the deep meditation stage and the, and the hypnagogia and allowing yourself to go into the hypnagogic imagery and just letting it go, you know, yeah. and seeing where it takes you and then bringing that back into the meditation state space. Can, these are really remarkable experiences. Yeah, that's terrific. And, and to me, it's like, it harks on um, what is often referred to as uh, the quality of witness awareness, this kind of dispassionate um, observation of the nature of the mind. And I think it was, I think it was, um, in fact, it might have been Krupalu who once said that, you know, one of the highest um, accomplishments is, is uh, watching the mind without judgment, watching the mind um, in this kind of witnessing stance, which is highly in line, again, the kind of, Dropping back deeply into the um, deeper under the pool, uh, the, the charter of Advaita Vedanta, the, the, the ability to step back into a stance where you can watch the display of the mind without getting hooked into it. And and this is almost it, it, it's what separates. And we'll talk about this in a second. But, but in my experience, Jennifer, this is what separates liminal dreaming from from lucid dreaming proper. Is that because the rapidity of the experience is such you really don't have that much opportunity to like engage the dream, get in there and change the dream like you would with classic lucid dreaming, let alone dream yoga. Your, your, the great contribution is this kind of uh, witnessing awareness that develops. Um, and, when, and when you can start to see, you know, the, the image I use is, you know, we live our lives, uh, the main storyline or narrative of our, of our lives is like the, the big CNN broadcast news, right? And then <laughs> under, underneath that narrative, there's the sub, there's the crawler, right? The CNN crawler. So there's a sub-narrative that's going on. Um, what what Trump and Jay often talked about is subconscious gossip. And then underneath that, there's another narrative. Um, and so there's, this, <laughs> there's story upon story upon story. And those stories, when they become unraveled in these hypnagogic hypnopopic spaces, we have the precious opportunity, in fact, to see this kind of this perverse samsaric layered cake that, that the ego creates. And, and I would argue, really, that it's one reason why, um, sidebar, it's one reason why we love stories. I, I, it's why we love novels and we, we love to get captured. I would argue that's just an epiphenomenal expression of this underlying narrative that is ego structure itself. And so when you see this unfolding, you start to realize a, a deep, um, you know, deep access to the again the, the structure of what constitutes a large part of our so-called conscious lives, which of course, in this perspective, is is mostly unconscious. We don't we don't realize the, the narratives upon narratives upon narratives that uh, we live our lives upon, and, are, and in fact, are really um, non-lucid victims of. And so, to me, just like in the spirit of lucid dreaming, 
which is eventually where I want to take the conversation with you. This is a fantastic way to explore these these um, unravelings of the narratives, the stories. And then um, and I'll skip back to this in a second, but I want to see what you have to say about my literature here, how we can then use liminal dreaming as, as part of what's called um, lucid sleep onset. But um, I'm curious if this also resonates with what you've experienced in, in your teachings and also personally with yourself. Well, that was that was really a lot of uh, beautiful thoughts in there. That I could, we really could just do this for hours. So, um, yes, you're right. It is a lot harder with liminal dream space to, um, to, you know, go in there and, and muck around with what the experience is, partly because it's so, it's so fast moving and kind of non narrative. I mean, I, there are, I do, I do things, you know, so I've, I've been, um, exploring with what, like what, how much taste can I have? When yeah. I'm in liminal dream space, yeah. you know, I, I find it's really easy to, um, bitter is the easiest taste. Um, and I can get bitter orange, but it's hard to get, spe- it's hard to get specific flavors. You know, I can get kind of the higher up <laughs> and, um, I can, like, I also, another game I, I play, uh, you know, practice I, I pursue is, uh, how many, um, dream tracks can I run? simultaneously yeah you know yeah. how many um you know what well, right how many like I, i'm following a path of unfolding and how many of them can i can you know where whereas like down i can see it in in depth inside the the world that world that's unfolding and i also at a high level you know six so far is kind of my kind of my <laughs> um wow. you know you yeah, <laughs> it gets pretty weird in there man yeah. and um you know um uh the, you know you were talking um you know, Kripalu and sort of Vedantic ideas, um, you know, yoga nidra. Uh, some some yoga nidra teachers and schools will say, you know, no, calling it hypnagogia is really simplifying it. Although some, like, you know, Rob Stryker School, some some say, some are just with me. They're just willing to say, yes, you're going into hypnagogia. But um, in my experience uh, in, you know, yoga nidra, you're being led into kind of a hypnagogic space. And yeah. the whole idea was that deep, deep, deep physical relaxation that allowed your mind the 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 space to to have that observer to have that witness but as you say it is um it is a, a bridge into if you like um there are a couple of practices in the book and my book is built around practices there's mm-hmm. there's about um i don't know maybe the 18 or something i should know that that number but i don't um specific uh exercises in the book and an exercises workbook in the back um, so I'm, 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 um, practice is kind of how the central organizing principle in my life. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of just the idea of practices. I even have a chapter simply about practice. And, um, two of those exercises are about, um, how the liminal, using the liminal dream space as a bridge into lucid dreaming. I mean, and when I, um, you know, went back and read, um, you know, when I was writing the book, I went back and read, because I, I, I studied lucid dreaming for a while. I studied with Stephen LeBerge, and I, you know, and I actually got to do a workshop with Namkai Norbu, and the whole, you know, um, you know, going back and reading uh, Dream Yoga, Namkai Norbu's, you mm-hmm. know, um, you know, the something of light, I'm sure you could, you can give me the, the actual title. Yeah, um, Dream Yoga, the light. Natural That's language. one. <laughs> um, I, I yeah, exactly. I I was um, uh, going back and reading. I was like, oh wait a minute, he's he's talking about hypnagogia in here. 
That's you know, right. he's talking about going, you know, learning. I mean, when I, when I use like the phrase conscious dreaming, the idea of, you know, uh, having consciousness in your dream space, being, you know, having aware, like having your dream self has a kind of a self-reflexive awareness, um, you know, sort of, you know, pre-lucidity, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it makes sense that you would go into that space and, and become conversant or well-practiced with it as a way of moving into um, the lucid dream space and the dream yoga space, a space where you can actually, you know, practice while in the dream space. Yeah. Yeah. So, so talk to us a little bit um, about the actual stages, because again, it is where I'm, I'm very interested in what my friend um, Evan Thompson talks about. He, he coined this really lovely term um, uh, called quantum phenomenology, which is really applicable where, the idea is that with practices like this, um, obviously conjoined with meditation altogether, you're, you're just developing an extremely uh, heightened, exquisite uh, awareness, sensitivity of mind. That uh, The idea behind the quantum component is you start to see things at refined levels that you've never seen before. Um, and this, of course, yeah. is where, just sidebar, this is where neuroscientists and cognitive scientists are literally trying to measure the irreducible mind moments, you know, using very sophisticated, what are called tachistoscopes and the like, they're able to detect that meditators, and this is definitely worth interjecting, that meditators um, quite literally perceive more of reality, because as the mind is less caught up and, and seduced by thought, awareness is actually heightened, saturated, and, and one therefore literally, not metaphorically, literally sees more, feels more, tastes more, touches more, hears more because they're, you know, they're not diluting, they're thinking less. And so with with liminal dreaming, one of the things it does for me that, that I want to turn back to you is it, in fact, um, nurtures this kind of quantum phenomenological approach to the way we sleep. We can go, you know, um, as you know, Andreas Mavramatis in his classic book talks about the four stages of hypnagogic <laughs> descent. And, you know, here, what we do is we go, wow, you know, OMG, I never realized, yeah, my mind actually (laughs) does kind of cascade down through these sequences. And again, by installing this map, we can better appreciate the territory. And so talk to us a little bit about that, Jennifer, and especially what you refer to as auto-symbolic phenomena, what what he refers to as um, thought image amalgamation stage, which I find to be by far the most interesting, But, but kind of walk us through those stages so we can refine the map for our listeners and, and they can better appreciate what's happening to them every single night. And I love that you brought up Mavramatis because uh, his 1983 book, Hypnagogia, is one of the only other um, uh, texts where the, the whole thing is about what I am calling liminal dreaming, but just the half right. about liminal dreaming is about hypnagogia. I mean, so few people write about it, you know, at all. And so he talks about the four stages. Um, you know, first you're seeing, you know, points of light and, um, you know, there's, there are sounds and then there are, I love it. There's the specificity of nature yeah. scenes. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm like, I don't know, Andreas, that's a little right. specific. Yeah. Um, I about that uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and he talks about, um, thoughts and images more like as you get deeper it gets more dream like um uh and uh what i refer to as auto symbolic well what i uh, ta- discuss as auto symbolic phenomena um which is um Ebert Silberer who is a contemporary of Freud and 
who affected Freud. Um, Freud, who was surely aware of hypnagogia when he was writing about dreams. And what Silver is talking about is the um, is that the dream images uh, really re- they reveal what's happening in your mind. And I'm not talking about interpretation. I'm not talking about a meaning that's hiding behind a symbol. I'm talking about, um, and as Silver, talking about uh, image as the language of the unconscious. Do you know what a rebus is? The language of the unconscious. A re- so a rebus, one of those things where it's like a, a, a drawing of an eye, a heart, and a drawing of a sheep, I love you, like that kind of thing. So, if, you know, a rebus is kind of like a, um, you know, a, a pun, but a way of using the images as words. And Silver thought that autosymbolic phenomena, that the, in, the, in the dream state, and particularly in hypnagogia, you could have these, these images that revealed um, thought, that were thought um, uh, instead of in word and image. And his classic example is he's trying to edit uh, a particularly tricky passage and he sees himself planing a piece of wood. Um, but one of the things that, um, you know, when I was reading through Mavramidis's four stages, I thought, okay, I recognize those, you know, points of light. I recognize the deeper you get in, you get scenes. But I thought, well, you know, this, this is really just him observing his own experience. And, and so I started going, and like you, I, 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 I find these, these maps really help clarify thoughts. And I realized that I, I kind of have my own version of, but there's still four of them, <laughs> of the of the state, the steps along the way of the continuity of consciousness. And and I have a I have a practice for each one. And by the way, one of the most frustrating things about writing a book, I'm sure you know this, is that you keep doing. I've, I've continued having this be my practice, even though I finished writing this book almost two years ago. Um, and uh, and so some of the things you know were. Are, aren't quite in the book because I didn't formulate them into clear thought until after. But so, okay, the first, as I'm going down into sleep, my first stop in hypnagogia is, um, is a very mostly awake, uh, just below consciousness. And I, 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 uh, I came to it at a performance of Carmen with my in-laws. It wasn't a very oh, good wow. performance. But I wanted to track what was happening, so I was, I was going into hypnagogia and and having these kind of you know free associative images. And every time the music changed, I would open my eyes and read the super titles, and then go back into hypnagogia. Oh, wow. So I was kind of having this hypnagogic dream space while tracking the opera, um, and um, it really unlocked childhood memory. You know, I mean, like the public pool and the smell of the chlorine and remembering what it looked like and remembering the color of my bathing suit. So it was a hypnagogic dream space, but only barely. You know, mostly it was a lot of it was thoughts, thought and memory. Um, so this, I think this would really map on, you know, what my brother is talking about, you know, those, those early stages where it's just points of light. The next, the next down in for me, um, uh, still a little bit more awake, I find is where I can touch type, mm-hmm. you know, so I can sit with my computer in my lap. I can go into light hypnagogia. I can, and I can actually just write what the experience is. Um, and it's very, uh, a lot of words, a lot of word play. Um, and, you know, I think with Mavramidis, you know, you're, you're in the, the stage where maybe you're, you're hearing, you're hearing sounds, um, a little, 
a little deeper in. Um, it's very imagistic, a yep. lot of color, a lot of, um, you know, associated, like one image brings up another image, brings up another image. Um, I can actually talk through that one into a voice activated recorder. I have a few of those dreams um, transcribed in the book. And there's a lot of, you know, a very rich gem-like color and, you know, hands playing the piano that turns into plants growing in my whole field of vision, like a sped up film of, of plants growing, you know, so a lot of, um, and, and my Romanus talks about that as well. And then sort of the deepest level in is where they start to become more, uh, slight more narrative, like little snippets yep. of what's actually, you know, like, like more of a REM dream. Um, and that's, you know, and that, I think that's where, um, if I'm trying to practice having my mind stay awake when my body goes to sleep, I can get to that deepest phase. So I kind of have my own four map onto his. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And, and what comes to mind is, um, I have this little jingle. I'm curious how this lands with you where, you know, fundamentally thoughts are to waking consciousness as dreams are to dreaming consciousness. And, it's the same underlying consciousness. It's just the display, the the form of that consciousness alters when you go from so-called waking state to, to dreaming state. And to me, just to reiterate one thing that I find the most interesting is, in fact, that um, thought image amalgamation stage. I think it's a third of Andreas's four where in exactly mm. this way you get to watch. You know, you're, you're thinking, you're thinking, you're thinking, which usually means, you know, prefrontal cortex and all that are still online. And then you start to see, again, the neural um, correlate signature of this is, you know, maybe the, the PFC is coming offline. The, the thoughts are gradually starting to shapeshift into images. You get this really compelling thought image amalgamation stage, which I find super interesting. And then what I do with these, Jennifer, is um, when I read Tartung Tuku's description of this in his book, Openness Mind, it was like, hey, man, right on, where what I will do, he, he talks about the idea of, Taking a thought, and an image is something like, if I remember correctly, he says, you know, grab with your mindfulness, hold the thought as if you're holding uh, the hand of a small child, and and lead it into the sleep state, and then let it go. And, and so, what I do with this that I find so fascinating is I will do, in fact, just that. I'll be trolling in, in this kind of um, uh, hypnagogic space. A thought arises. I'll very gently lasso it with my attention. And then I'll watch it, you know, dispassionately. I'll watch it kind of morph from a thought into a thought image amalgamation. And then if I can hold it long enough, I can then watch that actual thought, so to speak, create dream reality. And, and then the thought, and I argue using the kind of the tenets of the subtle inner yogas, where we talk about wind and prana lung, that what I'm witnessing is a thought morphing into an image being inflated by the subtle prana, the lung, of the mind and therefore almost literally inflates before my very eyes into the fourth stage, which of course would be a micro lucid dreamlet, you know, that lasts what three, four, five seconds. It may not last very long, but it is absolutely a legitimate experience of a witnessing lucid dream. Um, and to me, this is a, a, a very brief kind of uh, um, iteration of what Stephen famously um, coined, you know, waking initiated lucid dream where it may not last a long time. And the reason I want to talk about this with you is because people are often very discouraged. You know, the single biggest obstacle to lucid dreaming is 
I can't do it. You know, it's like, it sounds so cool and it's marketed and it just sounds awesome, but I just can't do it. Well, if you start to relate to the hypnagogic space in this way, and you work with lucid sleep onset in this way, you can actually have very legitimate micro lucid dreamlets every single night as you watch thought morph to dream inflate into a dreamlet. And to me, I find it's just like you, I find it just super interesting and it's super fun to watch. In this case, thought does create reality. It's, you know, they call this as, you know, lucid solipsism. So you actually are creating it. But it, then to me, what it does is just to take it the final step, then I will, you know, kind of wake up from that space, um, you know, look up at this world, so-called waking state, and ask myself, you know, how fundamentally different is this? You know, I may not be creating this reality like I do in my micro dreamlet, but I'm using thought to certainly color my reality. So um, I know I'm sucking a lot of air out of the room with that statement, but this is what gets <laughs> me excited about this stuff, you know, because it's like, it's like, whoa, here's just, there's so much going on here that anybody can play with. It doesn't have to get so intimidated and discouraged with their inability to have full-blown lucid dreams. So um, anyway, I'll come up for here. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. I love your, your riffs are fantastic. I mean, and I love your image. So, you know, again, if you're talking about the Maravana's four stages, um, you know, which are flashes, like flashes of light and color, and then it's like faces turning toward you. And then it's those like auto-symbolic phenomenon, those like images arising. And then it's like getting into the hypnagogic dream. So like his four stages. But I loved your idea that going through those is like watching a thought form. You know, the very beginning of the thought and come, you know, having it, you know, come into like, you know, your human realm and take shape and then become part of narrative story. So kind of watching thought form. And uh, the idea of getting into hypnagogia uh, as a way station for lucid dreaming or sort of almost as just a, a, an alternative or a different version. You know, actually, um, one of the, one of the ways I started teaching hypnagogic dreaming is I had a guy who, um, who had come to a workshop of mine and, and, you know, wanted to really wanted to learn lucid dreaming because he felt that he was too, uh, controlled by his daytime, you know, uh, mind, you know, goal oriented. And he wanted to learn to, you know, give his night consciousness a little bit more privilege, you know, and, and, but he just couldn't learn to lucid dream. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll teach you, I'll teach you how to liminal dream. Um, and I, and I realized how easy it is, um, for people to practice because we all are natural liminal dreamers. We all go through it and through, um, developing that 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 form of consciousness, like what you said, um, is is a way. Either either you can just stay there and be like, oh yeah, these, these little lucid little dreamlets, these 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 uh, uh you know this this awareness that I'm having of these this dream state is enough, or else it just gives people you know whatever you can. It's also sort of a training wheels kind of mode where it, it teaches you to have that consciousness, and then you can go into the lucid dream practices. And, you know, I, I, I agree, I agree with you that the, you know, the, the, the nature of reality, and I'm making air quotes here, um, you know, really, really those kinds of questions really start to bubble up to the surface when you start to experience these, these modes of mind. Yeah. Isn't it, isn't it? And my, and my, my latest thing here, Jennifer, I'm curious how this lands with you is this is the great, 
um, gift in, in my exploration of these nocturnal practices is that, you know, I, I, um, I, I start to see how there's a lot of kind of code language or secret language. It's actually in the, in the wisdom traditions that sometimes literally referred to as twilight language, which is perfect because liminal states oh, great. are great. Isn't that beautiful? They're like twilight, yeah. they're twilight states. And, and, and by that, what I mean is if you take a really close look, and I guess on one level, my work, when I look at it retrospectively, is a, is a bit of a translator where I'm, I, I translate darkness as a code word for you know, ignorance in the unconscious mind, lucidity is a code word for awareness. And for me in this regard, um, perhaps the most interesting is the dream is a code word for manifestation of mind. And when you start to really look at that, then you understand why the wisdom traditions often say in, in so-called waking reality, we're, we're simply just dreaming. Um, the dream, we're just cascading um, from one dream to another, like recursive dreaming or nested dreams. And so I think we can really start to see how this plays out in, in these liminal spaces. We, we can start to see exactly how this type of exploration absolutely positively leads to a deep understanding or exploration of the nature of consciousness itself. And it's like you say, you have some great phrases in your book, you know, exploration of the ever-changing froth of perception. I mean, I just love that. Such an evocative <laughs> phrase. It's just, it's just like <laughs> spot on. And the other thing it does too, just to retro, retrofit it, and it's really a form of, of dream incubation when you're able to take a, a thought from waking consciousness and kind of um, seed it let it, it actually unfold and mature in, into a, a dreamlet. It's also a way to watch that process taking place in a kind of more microcosmic way. Um, and so, so let, me, let me ask you a little bit about um, the shadow side of all this. Um, in fact, if oh. there is one, because wherever, you know, one of the maxims um, is that wherever you find light, you will find shadow. And it's also bidirectional. Wherever you find shadow, you will find light. And so, what in in your experience, um, either with students that you've taught or in your own path, what would you kind of toss out as some possible shadow sides or things to look out for? So definitely, whatever is in you know because this is experience. You know, I'm you know as a phenomenologist, it's all experience, but because. You know, this is experience where your either daytime waking, controlling interior monologue, ego self kind of relaxes down a little bit. Not only will you sort of just see, you know, what's happening in your mind, but also the, you know, the normal controls that you're exerting will to some degree be relaxed, you know, and so people who have a lot of darkness, who have a lot of fear, um, those kinds of things, those, those things may arise in the liminal dream space. You know, I have definitely had that happen. People who say, oh, you know, this is a very frightening space for me. Um, you know, um, I have, you know, I have a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of dark memories. I have a lot of, uh, you know, um, you know, my psyche can be a frightening place. And those things definitely can arise in these spaces, you know. And one of the one of the things that I say to people is it's it's I mean, the unfortunate or fortunate or whatever it is, the the, the fact of the thing is that if what's in your psyche is a lot of fear, then that then that's your yeah. work is working with fear. Yep. 
you know, if what's in your psyche is darkness, then your work is working with darkness. And, and so within the liminal dream space, uh, uh, one of the, I mean, one of the advantages to it is when you're doing this kind of dream work, you're the one who's inviting it in, right? Yeah. You're the one who's, who's bringing it on. Um, you know, there are in the same way that there are studies where people are working with um, lucid dreaming and PTSD and such. Um, there are also people doing doing this with liminal dream. Particularly, you mentioned um, Richard Miller uh, when you're talking about my bio, who's one of the schools of Yoga Nidra. I've studied both with Richard Miller and with Uma Dinsmore-Tully, who is one of the co-founders of the Yoga Nidra Network. And um, I've done extended uh, trainings uh, in Yoga Nidra with both of them. And I rest, which is Richard Miller is at the head of that form um, of Yoga Nidra. They've done a lot of work um, with PTSD, with the military, with soldiers, you know, um, uh, and um, uh, Uma Dinsmortali has done work with people who um, have pain. She's done a lot of work with Yoga Nidra and uh, child, the process of childbirth, what have you. Um, you know, both cases uh, working with these sort of darker parts of self through working with hypnagogia. And in the book, I have um, I have a practice for people uh, to, with um, sleep paralysis. So sleep paralysis, which is often a liminal dream phenomenon, you know, where you're you're paralyzed and often there's some sort of malevolent presence in the room. And, you know, about, you know, 5% of the population or so um, uh, frequently has sleep paralysis. And for them, it, it can be... Um, you know, like a, a sort of a lifetime challenge dealing with this. And um, Ryan Hurd, yeah. who works in lucid dreaming um, yeah. and um, who runs the Dream Studies portal, is somebody who has a lot of experience with sleep paralysis. He actually wrote a small book called Sleep Paralysis. It's a great book. Mm -hmm. um, and I worked with him on this exercise. There's an exercise in the book for bringing on sleep paralysis. Right. And the idea being that if, you, that if you're somebody who really, who suffers from sleep paralysis, you know, regularly, you can bring on the experience consciously. Yeah. And by bringing it on consciously, you have a certain amount of control over it. You're the one who's decided that you're going to make it happen. That's right. You know, so, um, so working with the, working with the, the fear or the, the anger or whatever, whatever shadow whatever it is that's shadowing you that's in your, that's in your unconscious, you know, doing the liminal dream work, um, consciously inviting those things into your own experience is a way of meeting them and of working with them, which, on you know, is terms. part of what's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. And you're doing so on your terms, you know, you're actually able to titrate the experience to the degree that you can digest and metabolize it. And just so you know, and I'll send you the links, Jennifer, we, I had the, rich opportunity of interviewing both Ryan and Richard. Um, and so I'll send you the links to that. And, and obviously, oh, great. These, yeah, these are the, these are the dudes that are really into both sleep paralysis and, and yoga ninja um, respectively in some really big ways. But here, here's one thing. One of the, one of the other quotes that really stood out for me in your book um, was this one where you say, you know, the ability to simultaneously inhabit the worlds of waking and sleep will change how you locate yourself everywhere. And I thought that was a really compelling statement because one of the, the shadow elements that, that I could see here, and I'm wondering if this speaks to you, is um, 
the ability to dislocate yourself um, from one or the other. In other words, one of the shadow elements of discovering the somewhat equanimous nature of all these different states of consciousness is from an egoic perspective, you no longer have a hitching post. Uh, you become a little bit unhitched. And, and what happens here is, well, I think what could happen is what I read about um, with virtual reality. And I had a, a cognitive neuroscientist, we talked a little bit about this, um, what they refer to as alternative world syndrome, you know, where you can get this is an extreme example, but I think you know where I'm, where I'm coming from, where, where you can get um, so immersed in the VR medium. And I, I noticed this the, the first, or maybe even second time I did it, when I was in the VR for, for quite a long time. We're talking hours. And, and when I took the headset off, um, it was like, whoa, you know, like, where am I? You know, because the, the, the VR was so real that when I, when I took off my headset, um, one of the first responses was like, wow, look how, look at the clarity of this program, this app, right? You know, that's like my yeah. reality. That's my reality. And it's like, this is like <laughs> no different. This, this app is just as real as what it is. <laughs> headset. And again, that, talk about a liminal space. I mean, that was a liminal space. You know, I had been thrown out of the VR um, into this, you know, so-called reality. But I definitely had not landed here, and it was it was I found a revelatory. But when I um, kind of capitulated to these you know egoic narratives, I found a little bit of panic underneath it all. I was like, hey, wait a second, what just happened to my reality here? And so I, I think one of the shadow elements I'm, I'm wondering how this settles with you. It's a little bit like what R. D. Lang, the great um, psycho spiritual psychiatrist once said, you know, the mystic swims in the same ocean where the psychotic drowns. And so mm -hmm. we, we can have these experiences, but if we don't have the psychic infrastructure, um, and in particular, again, this is why I think these bloody maps are so important, because if you don't have a more refined, deeper understanding of the maps of mind and reality, then when your reality starts to become a little bit unglued, which is exactly what happens when you slide into these liminal spaces, it, it could, you know, instead of swimming, you drown. Um, so have you had anything like that with personally or with any of your students where people come up and saying, yeah, you know, I'd rather not go here. I don't want to see this kind of thing. Uh, as, as For my sure. Teacher, my teacher, Pumla Prembache, sometimes says, you know, some people just prefer to be stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I have definitely, I've definitely had this. With, I mean, with myself, not as much. I, I've had people say, well, you know, what keeps you from, you know, spending hours in, in liminal dream space? And the answer is nothing. <laughs> and I do. Yeah. Um, um, but, uh, but, I, but I, you know, I understand, you know, the, the idea of, you know, your sense of reality coming unglued. And we all know people who have in the face of any number of modes of consciousness experimentation have become you know, a little unglued because, you know, delving in, you know, uh, you know, meditating in the desert, you know, you know, sort of the fasting, sleepless meditating in the desert, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, and the, you know, and what some people are doing with psychedelics, you know, um, you know, and, and, and anywhere along that spectrum of ways of experimenting with and exploring consciousness, you know, they can all go you know, off the rails in a certain way if you don't have enough, you know, if, if you aren't glued enough to reality. And I have definitely had um, 
in my workshops, I've had people, you know, raise their hands and say, look, I'm really, I'm worried about, uh, about losing touch of what my reality is. And, and I, you know, I understand, I, I understand that, you know, I mean, I, you know, I have, I, I do spend a lot of time in these middle zones and, you know, get to places where, you know, sometimes I forget whether that happens in waking life or dreaming life, you know, I mean, it's, um, you know, uh, it can get, uh, it can get a little hazy, especially in the morning. I'm a very, I'm a very, very slow to wake person and my hypnopompic space extends usually beyond the time I'm, I'm getting out of the bed, you know, but any, but, but of course, any form of exploring mind is going to bring you up against the things in mind that are weird. You know, I mean, and, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, uh, you know, don't forget to eat, (laughs) you know, don't forget to ground yourself in reality, you know, smell flowers, you know, pet kittens, you know, I mean, it's, you know, like the sort of, the sort of grounding, you know, the more, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, in this sense, I think the the Jewish mystics, you know, had this one right, you know, which is, you know, you're, you, you, if you're going to be going off and exploring the, the more you're going to be exploring the strange realms, the more you should, you know, have a good home life. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I was like, what did, Jack, what did Jack Engler so famously say, you know, before you can be nobody, um, you have to be somebody. Um, you know, yeah. There has, has to be a, 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 a talked about, you know, holy uh, jumping off platform where there, where there has to be a stable egoic structure as illusory as that fundamentally is, um, where you actually can see, um, you know, the you transcend, but include that. You know, use it as a platform. It's there for you. It's a parachute if you need it. But then by going beyond it, um, you know, you kind of better situate it and, and leave it in its proper place. Um, and so, so here's a, here's a question for you. I thought one of the most interesting little exercises you had in your book was this um, delightful little romp through what you call the vanishing point. Um, mm. And to me, you know, I, I love it because the, one of the things I try to kind of talk about a riff, especially when I'm talking to scientists, you know, neuroscientists and the like, who have such a linear on-off relationship to consciousness, I, I often share with them that, you know, I think if you take a closer look at Eastern models of mind, um, what they fundamentally do is they pr- replace the, the Western light switch with an Eastern dimmer, where, you know, you're not just going, <laughs> it's not just on-off, alive, dead, black, white, yes, no, you're just going from gross to subtle to very subtle. And so this is exactly, of course, what happens when we do this descent from um, waking consciousness into the dream state. And so to me, talk to us a little bit about that, because it, it reminds me, you know, again, Trungpa Che was like the master of the one-liner. And what he said along these same lines that I thought was inimitable, where he said, you know, you can't, ego can't attend its own funeral. That in a very real way, when you go from um, ego to egoless, from form to formless, which is kind of the descent from waking consciousness, especially into deep dreamless sleep, because dreamless is formless. In a very real way, ego goes unconscious because consciousness actually can't perceive non-duality. Consciousness can't perceive wisdom by definition. And so when you talk about that as the vanishing point, I said, whoa, this is a really interesting way to talk about that. So maybe riff a little bit on your experience with that and, and how you work with people with Kind of guiding them through this vanishing point. Sure. So, I mean, the the, the vanishing point is that um, you know uh, 
the exercise itself is that is that uh, moment of you know body falls asleep and mind remains awake and and just that tipping point where it goes from um, the deepest hypnagogic space into the nothing right into the actual dreamless sleep and how far into that can I go? You know, that first I talked about the watershed dream that, um, that, uh, got me interested in liminal dreaming in the first place. Um, that experience of realizing that my body had fallen asleep and my mind was awake and that the closer, and then, and then that's the sort of step and that the closer I'm getting, you know, it's, it's almost reminds me of those, um, you know, in painting perspective points, you know, it's always the point in the distance or of having died in dreams. That's a, that's a good one. So, you know, where it's like, um, you know, in hypnagogia where I'm, I'm okay. It's uh, the closer I'm getting to the point where my, where any kind of consciousness blinks out, the more it turns narrative dream, the more it turns into, you know, almost like that kind of like the rebirth, alluring story you see the couple making love or whatever it is right um you know you know the more um and the more it goes into sort of dream story and i found that i can i i can i've pushed that point a little further like mm-hmm. i can go a little further a little further into the space where i'm i'm uh, i'm still have dream consciousness mm-hmm. but i'm 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 approaching that place where it's dreamless sleep and i find that the closer i get to that point the more, the less my, any, the conscious part of my liminal dream mind has play and the yeah. more it's actual, it's, it's dream storyline, you know, so in REM dreams, even in lucid dreams, right? Lucid dreams are usually credible. You know, to, you know you're still in the dream world and you, you, you would not really be able to, you know, if someone next, next standing next to you is talking about the fact that they're going to be, you know, you know, you know, going out at three and getting on the bus. If you know, in the liminal dream, you, you're like, oh, he's going out at three and getting on the bus. I'm lying on my bed. You know, whereas even in a lucid dream, you, you know, you 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 don't usually have the consciousness of the surroundings and the ability to perceive what's happening in the surroundings. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the closer the closer I get to that, the more it becomes more like the REM dream. The more it becomes like a. Uh, the, 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 almost the seduced into the credible storyline. I'm in this, you know, I'm, I'm in the illusion. And I, that's a, that's a very interesting, you know, it's a very interesting way to be thinking about experience. Like the closer you get to the point, the more the illusion starts to take over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's super, it's super interesting. I mean, you know, to try to maintain a level of extremely subtle refined awareness until the whole thing just dissolves into into the formless dimensions. And so, you know, there's one thing I, I I wanted to I forgot to toss this, and I want to say this ever so briefly when we when we were talking about some of the shadow sides of this. This may be of, of interest to you that um, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, um, and I'm sure other shamanistic traditions as well, but I know for sure because you know this is kind of my path that the the tradition itself in monasteries um, and, and centers as well, in that twilight zone between the waking of daylight and, and the darkness of the night, that is in fact when the traditions do what's called protector practice. Uh, they invoke protector principle because in, in that view, 
that mm. uh, when we transition from gaps, you know, we're, we're entering this kind of bardo between the waking state and the, I mean, the daytime state and the nighttime state. It's kind of in that rip um, in the fabric of, of the continuity, in this case of, of, of light, that nefarious and sometimes whatever unwanted, whatever, you know, you may want to refer to these forces may be, that uh, in the Buddhist tradition, that's in fact when they do the protective practice. And so I, I find that pretty interesting. It's like, again, it's the promise and peril thing that that there's um, great, in fact, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama once said this of, of Bardo um, experience altogether. He said that, you know, the Bardo's, and again, we can just paren here, liminal spaces. He said the Bardo's are a very dangerous time. And then I always put mm. a caveat, they're dangerous if you're unprepared. But they're also incredibly opportune times. They're, you know, the opportunity is, is in direct proportion to the peril. And so that, that if we're armed with the, the proper skill set, the maps, um, you know, sense of humor, intrepid quality, we can really take advantage of these, of these rips in our world and, and you know, really start to see things we've never seen before. Um, and so how has, I, I'm curious, how has this, practice of liminal dreaming, Jennifer, how has it affected or informed, um, as we start to kind of wrap up our time together, um, how has this practice of liminal dreaming affected, informed, transformed your relationship to lucid dreaming altogether? Um, Because most of the people that are listening to this, you know, are more or less interested in kind of coming on board because of lucid dreaming and dream yoga. And so liminal dreaming, obviously, is a super cool new thing for them to explore. But in your own experience and with your students, how have you discovered that liminal dreaming can um, affect, transform, or inform one's relationship to lucid dreaming altogether? Um, and I'm actually just in the process of writing an excerpt from my book for um, for Ryan for the Dream Studies Portal um, oh, cool. on kind of on this topic. Um, uh, you know, I, I as someone who spent a lot of time studying lucid dreaming and, and really working at its practice and, you know, able to succeed, but with, with, with a lot of work, um, I have, I have found that the, um, a lot of what I was trying to get at in that experience, I really can, uh, I can achieve in the liminal dream space. And that honestly, in a lot of ways for me, it's it's just, it's just a stranger space because the, the experience of being a self, or specifically not being a self, right. while still having consciousness of dream experience is so very strange. Um, but I also, um, you know, there are a certain, you know, people take my classes and my workshops for, for various reasons. You know, one of them being people want to learn lucid dreaming. It's a much more well-known phenomenon, and it is, as um, as my pal Jay Mutsafi, who I believe you know. Uh, says, uh, you know, calls like the, the, the most, the best, uh, you know, full body VR suit <laughs> you can imagine. <laughs> um, you know, um, and that learning, you know, learning the, you know, because learning liminal dreaming is frankly a lot easier unless yeah. you're a natural lucid yeah. dreamer. Learning liminal dreaming is, um, has given people, but, you know, it's like, like I said, it's the, it's the, the training wheels, it sort of teaches, not only does it teach people, um, you know, how to go learn dream practices and go through dream practices, it also gets you half the step there. Yeah. You know, um, it also, uh, you know, you, you, what, if you've got, if you're a conscious dreamer in hypnagogia, 
then and you can hold on to it as you're going into REM, or you can use the liminal dream space as a bridge, you know, wake up and then go back in. You can use it to um to find to like hone your visualization skills, exactly. for example. You know, practice those in liminal dream, then then you've you've learned a lot for what you need to know in lucid dream state. Yeah, perfect. And it's it's and this is one of the things that I really like about what you're doing because um, you know, in the classic text, like when I did my really long retreat, I was exposed to these traditional practices of dream yoga and um the general kind of take I have on the whole thing is that these these practice texts were written by meditative masters so stratospheric in their accomplishment that they kind of left out the mere mere uh, the baby steps that mere mortals have to yeah. take and so like you know, they, have, they have like two or three just you know amazing leaps between these stages and that's why i again it's my own cartography but i take these and then i basically, basically parse them out into like you know nine substages, which just makes it much more digestible and workable and so that's what i yeah. love about what you're doing is i couldn't agree more that now here's yet another stepping stone and and i you know it's interesting when the more i talk to my seasons on ironautical friends my you know heavy duty lucid dreamers who've been doing these for decades more and more of them now are coming to me and saying you know you know one of the principal ways i work with this every single night is in fact with hypnagogic um, um, practices and the like and so for you to bring in this really rich uh, array of practices and teachings to help substantiate that approach i think it's really encouraging for people because like hey you know what I never realized I could do this every single night. Yeah, you're right. I, yeah. I do experience this. And even that, and here's the kicker, is this idea of stealth help. There's more going on than meets the eye. But even that brings a quality of lucidity because even that recognition is lucid sleep onset. You know, you're starting to grease the skids by bringing a refined sense of awareness to the, to the descent into sleep and dream altogether. And, and that's... Again, that's no small thing. I mean, that's really encouraging for people. It's like, you know what? I can do this. This is something that yeah. I can kind of wrap my mind around with every single night and play around with it. I mean, that's what I do. I may not have a lucid dream every single night, but I sure as heck have lucid dreamlets every single night because I work yeah. with this. I play. I think it's the other thing I want to toss in here, and I, I, I'm sure um, you can say something about this, is it's not just working with it. I think it's just as much playing with it. It's like, whoa, here's here's a playground, like, you know, kaleidoscopic playground of the mind. And you go in there with an intrepid, curious, playful attitude. And, and it's like, hey, like, what is my mind going to dish up today? What what kind of kaleidoscope am I going to experience this night? What kind of um, inner acid trip am I going to take? Totally. <laughs> Yeah, and it's like, well, this is cool. And so instead of the usual kind of samsara capitulation into – um, you know, dark dreams, non-lucid dreams. It's like, you know what, I, I can play with this this love, light, light every single night when I drop into sleep. Don't you think? And and it is. It is. I mean, there's a lot that's play. And it is, I mean, amazing, astounding, wild, and fun. You know, one of the one of the um, places where I, I give workshops and classes is at festivals. I'm, I'm you know, um, and, you know, there's, you know, people. You know, the young people who are going to festivals and who are, you know, whatever. You know, probably playing with various some some sort of substance or some sort of experience. You know, I turn them on to this ex to this experience, and I say, look, you can do this. 
you can do this every night. It's free, legal, safe. You got no hangover. You know, <laughs> as you get older, you may not want be wanting to do what you're doing here. Or as you get, you know, back into the real world, you can't do necessarily what you're doing here. But, but you know, here's a way to have like you know an amazing 15 minute wild ride. You know, daily. That's going to give you a lot of the same kind of fun that you're finding in these other spaces. I mean, as as an alternative, it's 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 there's many 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 reasons why you would pursue it. You know, my um my friend Bruce Tamer was at one point working on um a book about endogenic highs. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, nice. <laughs> totally cool. Yeah, and for listeners who you know who are a little bit more seasoned that are paying attention to this. Um, for those of you, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're reading between the lines in this uh, hour and a half conversation, the fundamental tenets of Bardo teachings altogether. Um, so I pinged on it at the very beginning. And just to kind of bring it full circle, the, the, the Bardo principles are absolutely at play. Bardo means gap. I mean, it, they're virtually synonymous, aren't they, Jennifer? Where when you start talking about totally. the space, it's basically it's a form of Bardo dreaming. And um, it's a way to really kind of augment support the, our exploration of Bardo teachings altogether because, you know, we obviously, as you know, the Bardo teachings are directed towards the big liminal zone at the end of life. If you believe in that sort of thing, what Tibetans literally referred to as the dream at the end of time, that those same principles apply moment to moment. And, and when you're sitting in, or lying down and watching your mind unfold in this way, transitioning from... Um, one land center, so to speak, to the next, you're really watching the play of Bardo at work. And I think that, that one reason there's so much potential there, one reason it could be slightly disquieting from the egoic agenda. <laughs> but even that is revelatory, isn't it? Even that is like, whoa, what, why is this a little bit unsettling to me? Well, it's well, and And even I do get into this um, in the book, and I, we don't have time to go into the full story here. But in fact, at the, many people who are dying are in hypnagogia. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, and you know, I, I, I had a dying aunt in a hospice and, and ended up uh, encountering the doctor who runs that hospice. And that, you know, he's writing a book himself and, you know, the Netflix specials, et cetera, talking about the fact that people who are dying are often in hypnagogia and trying to teach their loved ones how to deal with somebody. My own aunt, you know, the last of her consciousness before she died. You know, when I was doing her deathbed, which I realized she was in hypnagogia, trained trained to talk to people in hypnagogia. I was able to communicate with her, you know, and, and as someone who's developing, you know, a facility of operating in the world of consciousness, I mean, uh, the world of hypnagogia, you know, the, the, I, I, I hold the idea that, you know, potentially the, you know, the act of dying, which is one of the more important things we do in life, right. you know, is, is die. Um, you know that that I, I feel like practicing my my liminal dreaming is in some ways um, uh, a form of preparation for this for the great work of dying. I couldn't agree more. And it's like you know, Kabir said of of death also applies to dream. You know, what is found now is found then. It's just found in, in a, a more kind of extended fashion. And so, really, in a very real way, isn't it? Every night when we fall asleep, and this is why. In the Bardo teachings, um, Jennifer, they refer to the three Bardo, um, bar the three Bardos altogether are considered uh, similitude or concordant experiences of what happens every single night. And so every night when we fall asleep, 
um, that's a concordant experience of the bardo of dying. We're, we're dying to the waking state and taking rebirth in either the dream or deep dreamless state. And, and when we fall into deep dreamless space, that's a concordant experience of what's called the luminous bardo of dharmata. And then when we uh, re-arise in the dream state, that's referred to as a concordant experience of the um, karmic bardo becoming, which is why, of course, parenthetically, why sleep yoga is, uh, and again, for our listeners, sleep yoga in the Tibetan tradition is, is, is different from what Jennifer's been referring to as yoga nidra. They're, they're connected, but they're not yeah. the same. Um, so sleep yoga, luminosity yoga, in my tradition, prepares for deep, um, the deep dimensions of the bardo damata, and then dream yoga very specifically. In fact, it's, they say it's one of the main reasons that came about in the Tibetan tradition was to prepare people for the comic bardo becoming. And so it's, it's, it's a really cool way to uh, realize, hey, you know, what I'm going to experience um, at the end of life is going to be just a more extended manifestation of, of these kind of bardo liminal spaces that I'm experiencing every single night. And boy, does that add yet another dimension of, of like, why bother? You know, because that's, <laughs> that's the question I get all the time when people ask me, like, what do you want to Oh, I do these nocturnal meditations, and it's like, well, why bother? Well, there's maybe why you want to be bothered. Um, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, like the deeper, the deeper you look into it, the more you find. It's because, of course, you're you're really again exploring the nature of mind and doing sorts of things. And so, as we start to wrap this up, you know, I, I, one of the phrases I love, you talk about the the invitation to develop a corpuscular culture. I, I love that phrase. You have wonderful phraseologies, Jennifer. And so talk Thank to you. us um, in closing about um, corpuscular phenomena, what that term refers to, and um, and then we'll slowly wrap this show up. But talk to us a little bit about that because that, that, that can summarize kind of the spirit of what we've been doing for this last hour and a half or so. Sure. The crepuscular is, is that, you know, it's the twilight. It's the time between day and night, the liminal, you know, the liminal, zone of the day that we all go through again you know it happens every and you know twice a day really um and the, and i love this idea of um you know and, and i talk about liminal mind in the book as well the, the idea that we're um and you talked about this a bit in the beginning lingering to yeah. learn to linger in this liminal and rather than to to be thinking so black and white you know on off i'm in this place i'm headed towards that place it's, you know, this state or that state to really, you know, learn that, that, that the transition, um, that the transition is also the transformation, exactly. you know, learning, learning, learning to linger in those, in these liminal spaces is a way of, um, of becoming aware of, of how much, you know, you know, the, um, you know, the, the codependent arising, you know, of, of, you know, how every, you know, the, the feedback loop between me and world is actually where experience is. It's not out there in the world. It's not in here inside of me. It's in this, in this sort of the liminal between, you know, sort of self and other. And, you know, uh, becoming aware of liminal dreaming really, really heightens my awareness of this kind of interactivity. I mean, and, and even, even things, you know, like the, you know, the, the, the crisis of the environment or whatever. I, I feel like these kinds of things would be dealt with so much better if we just had a much better understanding of, of liminality. 
Absolutely. Yeah, beautifully said, beautifully said. And so as we start to um, kind of wind this thing up, tell us how people can um, learn more about your work, um, your website, like what you're currently working on, how they can connect to you and your programs and the like. So you can, um, so obviously there's my book, Liminal Dreaming, Exploring Consciousness at the edges of sleep, which you can, um, Penguin distributes it. So you can, you know, pretty much get it any, anywhere where you buy your books, go to your local bookstore. I'm always a fan. Um, you can also buy it on Amazon. Of course. Um, I give classes and workshops. My, I have a lot of different websites, but you can get to all of them from any of them. So the easy one is liminaldreaming.com and that will give you, um, some high-level information. It has my classes. I mean, it has some of my lectures and excerpts, interviews, much like this one, on the media page. Um, also has some exercises, both beginning exercises, learning to locate, and then also more advanced exercises, learning to linger in liminal dream, including some about lucid dreaming. I tweet a dream every day. I've been doing that for 11 years. Wow. At Onerifer. O-N-E-I-R-O-F-E-R. Um, and I give workshops and classes. I'm doing one at the SF Dharma Collective in San Francisco on October uh, 10 and 11 or 11 and 12. I really should know that. But whatever is the Friday and Saturday, it's a two-day uh, workshop um, going in. And because of the SF Dharma Collective, it, it's very you know Buddhist-inflected, going into um, the actual practice of liminal dream and i'm always happy to to go and um do workshops and classes travel so uh uh you know you can always contact me about coming to your hometown <laughs> totally totally and any future books on the horizon for you anything on, on the written world um well right now i'm working on a series of of pieces you know it's it's uh i have developed so much more in liminal dreaming since I put out this book in terms of practices because it's my main practice, you know, going further and further with it. I would also really love to write more simply about the idea of practices. Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, organizing one's life around practice is um, is one of the most fruitful things that we can do. But, you know, this book just came out. Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like you, that's true. You have the same. <laughs> no, no kidding. I love it. Well, this is great. You know, I just want to close out with this jingle. Uh, it, it, I, I've never been able to, to find the, the definitive attribution to it, but, you know, it's pretty famous where it says, you know, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much room. And I, <laughs> I, love, I love the way you're living on the edge here and, and showing us that on one level, really, if we just take a very close look, and this is the other thing that's really revelatory is we're, we're always on the edge. We may not know it. We may not like it, but we just, you know, if we open our eyes to it with practices like lucid dreaming and liminal dreaming, you know, we realize we're, we're on the edge whether we like it or not. But you are definitely leading the edge. Um, it's just mm. been, a, been a delight to get to know you and your work. Um, it's not very often when on an entirely new kind of genre of, of exploration, you know, especially a new um, type of nocturnal practice in my cartography, comes into, into play. So I'm, I'm grateful for what you're doing, Jennifer. You do it with integrity, humor, and obviously a really rich spirit. And you're making the world a better place for it. So thank you so much for um, spending some time with us. And I, I hope personally that our paths uh, cross many times in, in this 
dimension or another. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. This has really been a fun conversation for me. Terrific. All the best. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.